Prince College Podcast, a ministry of Prince Avenue Baptist Church where our goal is to lead you to trust and follow Jesus. All right. Well, tonight we are continuing our series that we started last week that we are calling Worthless Religion. And I've just got to say from the get-go, after some reflection, that name is a little confusing. I like whenever Grant gets up here and says, Adam is continuing talking about worthless religion. Like, that's just like, it can be a little misleading. What I want you to know is we don't want you to have worthless religion. If that wasn't clear, we don't want you to have worthless religion, okay? Uh, That language is taken directly from the text that we examined last week in James chapter 1. Last week, we talked about how James chapter 1 tells us that we're not meant to just be hearers of the word, that we're not meant to just passively listen whenever it comes to the things of God, but we're actually meant to put these things into practice. Not meant to passively listen, but meant to actively engage. And here's the reason we're doing this series. The reason we're doing this series is that it is easy for us to say that we believe one thing and then actually live our lives in a completely different way. And if we say we believe one thing, and then we live our lives in a different way, then our religion is worthless. And we don't want to be a people of worthless religion. We want to be a people of intentional devotion. If you missed that last week, you can catch up with that on our podcast. But the basic premise of this entire series is I just want to take a few weeks to challenge you, to encourage you to think about what is it that you truly believe Like, I want to give us some time and some space in these moments to think critically about the beliefs that we hold, not just the things we say we believe, but the things that actually impact our lives. And so I want to ask you the question, are these things that you are claiming to believe, these things about God, who he is, what he has done, and what that means for you, is that actually impacting your day-to-day? Or are you saying one thing and then living in a completely different way. Because if you are, I love you, but that is worthless religion. And I want so much more for you than that. In short, I just wanna take some time for us to consider the question, what are our true core beliefs? What are our true core beliefs? I'm gonna use that language a lot tonight and over the next few weeks, and so I think it's important that we just kind of set a like, common ground. What do I mean whenever I say core beliefs? This is gonna be behind me on the screens. Core beliefs are internal beliefs that influence external actions. So core beliefs are the things that we actually believe deep down that impact the way that we live. Like you have a core belief right now that that chair is gonna support you, and so you're sitting in it with confidence without even thinking about it. What you believe has prompted your action. It's not just something you say, it is something you demonstrate. And core beliefs, what is deep within us, in many, many ways will determine the trajectory of our lives. And you don't have to take my word for this, the Bible talks a lot about the things that we actually choose to believe about the things that we allow to influence us, the sources that we allow to influence us, the things that we listen to and the things that become our core beliefs. We're gonna be all over the place in scripture tonight, mainly in the text that Grant and Shayla read for us a moment ago, but I wanna start here 
in Psalm chapter 1. If you got your Bible, I'd encourage you to flip over to the middle. Psalm chapter 1, the very first psalm, these first three verses are incredibly beautiful. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but look at this, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Look at verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff in the wind that drives, that the wind drives away. This is just one example of many in scripture where the psalmist is encouraging us to consider the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. And he's comparing these two and the thing that he points to that differentiates these two the most is who they allow to influence them. You notice that? He says, consider the wicked. Who do they listen to? They listen to the wicked. They listen to the counsel of the wicked. They sit with sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. But the righteous, the psalmist says, no, not so. The righteous, that they delight in the law of the Lord, that they delight in his holy scriptures, that they allow God's truth to pierce the deepest parts of their being, that they allow the truth of God's word to shape them, to form them. They meditate on his word day and night, and they walk in a way that is different. This is one example of many of the Bible pointing us to the reality that the voices you listen to, the things that you believe most deeply, will impact the trajectory of your life, which means we've got to pause long enough to give careful consideration to the question, what are our core beliefs? What are we allowing to influence us? Where are our core beliefs taking us? I think about it like this. Several years ago, whenever I was in college, way back when, for those of you who like to refer to me as really old, I'm only 29, but it's whatever. Uh, Several years ago, whenever I was in college at UGA, I was meeting my pastor for lunch. And I remember walking out of the restaurant on Atlanta Highway, and I went to go get into my vehicle. And as I go to get into my vehicle, there's an older man who was parked right next to me, and he rolled his window down, and he just asked me, hey, son, can you help me get to commerce? That was his question. And then he proceeded to hand me, no joke, a paper map. And I was like 21 years old, and I was like, I've never, where'd you even get this? Like, I don't even know where to buy this. Like, what are you talking? And he hands me a paper map. And here's the deal. He had highlighted on this paper map where he was coming from and where he wanted to go. He had the route highlighted, but the only problem was he had gotten lost on the way, and he had no idea where he was. And so all of this information that was right in front of him was completely useless because he had no idea which direction to even turn to start. And I didn't know how to read the map at all, but I did know how to get to commerce. And I told him where his landmarks were, and I told him a direction to head, and me coming alongside him, showing him where he was at on the map, and the information that he had in front of him, then made him feel more confident to navigate to his desired destination. And in many ways, that is my hope for you in this series. Like, I don't wanna just throw a map at you. I don't wanna just throw information at you. I wanna come alongside you. And I want to encourage you 
And I want to point you in the right direction. And I want to give you a direction in which to head. And I want us to learn together how we take the truths of God's word and begin to actually put it into practice in our lives. Not pursuing worthless religion, but actually beginning to live by the truths that this word teaches us. And so tonight as we continue this series, we're going to talk about a really important belief. And we're going to talk about, first and foremost, what we believe about us. And the question that I want to ask you tonight is really simple, is what do you believe about you? What do you believe about you? What do you believe shapes your identity? What do you believe determines your value? What do do you believe about your purpose here on earth? These are massive questions which admittedly I'm not going to answer in full in one 30-minute talk. It's just not going to happen. But I am going to try to give you a direction on which to head tonight. And we're going to talk about these things together because in this, this conversation, these questions in many ways will determine the trajectory of our lives, what we believe to be true about us, our identity, and where our value comes from will in many ways shape our pursuits what we pursue in career, what we pursue in relationships, it will determine the trajectory of our lives. What do you believe about you? I told you guys that for the next three weeks, we're gonna examine a biblical truth that we see in scripture, but we're gonna ask ourselves the question, is this something that we actually believe? And so the biblical truth for tonight, it's gonna be behind me on the screens, is this. Biblical truth that we see from scripture is that God determines my, God determines my identity and my value. That is the biblical truth that we see that is taught from scripture. God determines my identity and my value. And here is my assumption for many of you in the room. This may not be true for all of you in the room. My assumption for many of you is that you would at least like mentally agree with that statement. Like many of you are here because you have some belief in scripture, you have a belief in God, and you want to live a life pleasing to God. And so if I gave you a Prince College pop quiz, which we'll never do, I promise, but if I gave you a Prince College pop quiz and I put that statement on the quiz and put true or false, most of you would answer true to that statement. But the question that I wanna ask you tonight is is this really a core belief for you? Is that truth impacting the way that you live your life? Is it impacting your day-to-day? That's what I want to unpack with you tonight. And I want to do so by looking at this incredible story from 1 Samuel 16 that Grant and Shayla read for us a moment ago. They did awesome, Grant. Great. He was really sad that I hadn't asked him to read yet. So there you go, Grant. Shayla was terrified, so show your love for Shayla right now. We love you, Shayla. It's great. So this is, this is where all of this series actually started for me. I've been reading through the Old Testament on my own, just my own time with the Lord. And a couple of months ago, I started reading 1 Samuel, and I came across this story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I know we just kind of jumped into that text. If you're not familiar with the story of 1 Samuel very much, just a few things that you need to know. That the people of God, the people of Israel, they had requested a king, 
that they wanted to be like all the other nations around them, that they wanted a human king to rule them. If you were with us at all at the beginning of the semester, you know that through the entire book of Exodus, God himself is the one who leads his people. But by the time they get to 1 Samuel, they're not satisfied with the fact that God is leading them. They want a human king so that they can be like all the other nations. And so a guy by the name of Saul is anointed as king. And what we know about Saul very early on is that Saul is an impressive-looking dude. The text actually tells us that. That's the Adam Tarver translation, but it essentially says that, right? That he's taller than most. He's a mighty warrior. He has the appearance of a leader. The only problem is that while he looked good outwardly, he had all kinds of issues inwardly. He leads the people astray. And so what we see throughout the text of 1 Samuel is that God actually rejects Saul and he sends Samuel to anoint a new king. Samuel was a prophet in that day, so he sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. And Samuel tells, excuse me, God tells Samuel that one of Jesse's son will be anointed to be the next king of Israel. So in the text that we read, Samuel shows up on the scene, tells Jesse the whole situation, and Jesse begins to bring out his sons. The first son that he sees is Eliab, or Eliab, or however you want to pronounce it. And he sees this son, and he does the same thing that the people of God did with Saul. He sees this firstborn son, and he's like, surely this is the dude, right? He's tall. He's strong, he has the appearance of a leader, and Samuel is doing the exact same thing that the people did with Saul. He's being impressed by this guy's outward appearance. And God rebukes Samuel. And he says this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. If you underline in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline this verse. This verse is so significant. It's gonna be behind me on the screens, I believe. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. And here it is. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You guys, whenever I was reading that just in my own time with the Lord a couple of months ago, like that verse just really landed on me in a new and unique way. Like I have, I have read this story before. I knew what the, even the this verse was coming, but I began to ask myself the question whenever I read that verse, I began to ask myself, do I really believe that that's true? I began to ask myself, like do I believe that the most important thing about me is not what I produce, is not an image that I project. It's not what other people think about me whenever they see me. Do I really believe that the most important thing about me is the state of my heart before God? I just began to wrestle with that question. And here's the deal, I know the story. I knew what was coming next. I knew that Eliab was gonna be passed up for the young shepherd boy, the youngest of the bunch, David, And I knew that in the very next chapter, we were going to see exactly why. Because in the next chapter, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see David go to the battle lines and Eliab acts like a punk. And David stands up and conquers the giant Goliath in the name of the Lord. 
That's what happens. And we see why God passed over Elia because he showed that he was angry and he was jealous. And we see why he chose David because David was confident in the power of God and was confident to step out in the power of God, whatever it meant for him. And we see the truth that man looks at the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. We see it in these stories. And I began to reckon with this question, do I actually live my life my life, do I live my life like I believe that is true? Do I find my identity in what God says of me or am I trying to find those things in outward appearance? That's the question that I want you to reckon with tonight. I want us to think about those things together because here's the deal, outward appearance, it can mean a lot of things. And so I wanna ask you, like, what do we believe, like deep down in our soul, the thing that actually determines our pursuits, what do we believe determines our identity and our value? Do we believe it's in our successes? Do we believe it's in relationships, in our connections, in other people's opinion of us? Are we searching for it in a degree, in a future career choice, in a financial status? Are we looking for it in our looks, in our giftings, in our abilities? These were the questions that I began to wrestle with just in my own life, and these are the things that I want you to wrestle with as well, to take time to actually consider what is it that you believe determines your identity and your value, because what we believe most deeply to be true about us will determine our pursuits. And we understand that on some level, right? Like if you believe that your identity and your value is found in outward appearances, then you're gonna spend time pursuing those things. You're gonna spend time chasing after that which you think will find, you will find purpose in. You're gonna spend time pursuing the thing that you believe will bring you value. I've seen that in my own life. Like if my life is a testimony to you at all, I have seen it in my life that I have desired the approval of people and so I've chased after it. That I've tried to find identity and value in what I produce, in being good at my job, at being seen good by my superiors, by those that are over me, projecting an image that I want people to see. But then I feel the crushing weight of whenever things don't go the way that I thought that they should go. Whenever I'm pursuing some status, whenever I'm pursuing something that I think will bring me identity and value, whenever I don't get it, I feel like a failure and then I begin to define myself by my failures. And I don't think I'm the only one that does that. I think we all know to some degree what that's like. Perhaps you've seen that in your life as well. Perhaps you've begun to pursue identity and value in all the wrong places. Maybe you too have been a little too focused on what you produce outwardly, pursuing identity and value, and maybe it's led you to some really dark and broken places. And now you're left defining yourself by your failures, and your shortcomings. I want us to think about that. I want us to consider that, and I want us to see the truth of Scripture, that God says something else entirely whenever it comes to your identity and your value. Here's what the world will tell you. The world will tell you that what you do determines who you are. Our world is a world that is fixated on externals. The world will tell you that what you do determines who you are. But God says something else entirely. He says who you are should determine what you do. Our God is one who focuses on the internal 
and wants the internal to impact the external, not the other way around. And I want you to see that in Scripture. I want us to truly believe that because if we believe this truth and if we believe that what God says about us and our heart, the condition of our hearts before him is what matters most, then we will spend time cultivating faithfulness to him. And we will pursue intimacy with him because we believe that in a relationship with him is where true satisfaction is found, where true fulfillment is found. And we won't pursue the externals. We'll begin to pursue the internal and we'll want that connection with the Lord, beginning to trust what he says of us, not looking to approval from others, but resting in the approval that comes from God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what I want for you. See, so many of us, I see it in myself, and whenever I'm talking to many of you, meeting with you, the things that you are pursuing, so many of us, if we're honest, we have a core belief that says our identity and our value is something that we have to earn. It's something that we have to do, that it's found in some kind of external, that it's found in some kind of outward appearance, and we need to pause, and we need to remember and see what it is that the scriptures say and be reminded of who God is, what he has done, and what he says is true of you. And we need to find our identity and our value in that and in nothing else. So that's all I want to do tonight with just a little bit of time that we have left. I just want us to take some time And I just want us to look at some really important scriptures. And I just want us to see what the Bible has to say about us. I want us to be reminded of these things. And like Psalm 1, I want us to learn to meditate on these things and be transformed by these truths. And here's the deal. I want to encourage all of us, regardless of where you're at on your journey with Jesus, perhaps you're in here tonight and you don't even know what you believe about this whole church stuff. First, I just want to say I'm glad you're here. That's awesome that you've chosen to be with us. I want to encourage you to press in to this moment and see if this, is, if, see if this begins to resonate with you because this is what we believe to be true about you. But perhaps you're in here and you've been in church for your entire life. We're going to talk about some things that I guarantee you have heard before. But again, remember that the question is not have you heard it, but do you actually believe it? Are you willing to actually put it into practice in your life? So we're going to examine what does the Bible have to say about you? Well, from the very beginning, we see one really important truth. It's going to be behind me on the screen. What does the Bible have to say about you? The Bible says that you were created. The Bible says that you were created created. We see this all the way back at the beginning of the story. For those of you who know me well, you know that many of my conversations always come back to the book of Genesis. And what we see in the book of Genesis, in, verses, in chapters 1 and 2, is that we are introduced to a God who creates, that he speaks, and things start being. The sun, the moon, the stars, all of it come to be. The animals of the ground, birds of the air, fish of the sea. Our God is a God who creates. But whenever it comes time to create humanity, God does something really unique. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we see this. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What we see from the very beginning is that God creates humanity for a very specific purpose, for a very specific relationship that he creates mankind in his own image, meaning that we, as humanity, were meant to reflect the glory of the one who made us, that we were made to display his glory in his power. We were created to be reflections, images, glimpses of his very nature. We were created to be his representatives here on earth designed to display his glory and his power. What we believe about life, humanity, is that all human life has been created by God. And we see this in places like Psalm 139. Some of you know this. In Psalm 139, 13 through 16, it says, the psalmist is talking about God and says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, even whenever they were not yet. It is a beautiful truth that tells us that you were created that you were created for a purpose, that God formed you and he knows every day of your life, those in the past that you want no one to know about and those in the future that you're so nervous because you have no idea what they hold. He knows them all. He sees it all. He knows you. And I know that for some of you that might sound like a simplistic truth, but can we just pause for a second and just let that sink in? That you were created by a holy and mighty God. You were formed in your mother's womb. You were not here by accident. You were not here by some random chance. You were not here just because of a product of biology. You were here by divine design. You were created to display the glory of the one who made you. Your life has purpose. Your life has meaning because you have a creator who cares for you. You were created. This is the first thing that the Bible teaches us about us. Very soon after that, the Bible teaches us a second truth. Not only were you created, but the Bible also teaches us that you have sinned. You have sinned. We see this very early on in the story as well. As the story continues, even though humanity was created with this divine purpose, this divine design, we see that we were created in the image of God, but we see very early on that an enemy is introduced. And an enemy comes and begins to tempt humanity, trying to instill lies in their mind. And if you know this story, here's how this story goes. That the enemy comes to humanity placed in the Garden of Eden, placed in paradise, created in God's image to rule and reign on the earth, and the enemy comes to tempt humanity, and how does he do it? He does so by introducing an idea to them. He begins to introduce the idea that perhaps God is holding something back from them. He said, did God really say that if you eat of this tree, you will die? The woman answers, and he says, no, God knows that if you eat of this tree, and you will become like him. The enemy introduces an idea that becomes a belief 
that results in action. This is how the enemy comes after you. He introduces ideas that become beliefs, that become action. And what humanity began to believe is that somehow, some way, they'd be better off if they pursued their own way, if they didn't trust in God, if they rebelled against him. But what they found is this rebellion that they thought would bring life instead brings shame. And they take of the fruit and they eat of it and immediately their eyes are open and they were naked and they were ashamed. So what do they do? They run and they hide. And I think all of us, I know, all of us know what that feels like. That all of us in this room, we can think of moments in our lives in which we began to pursue something that we thought would bring us life, but in reality, it only resulted in shame. Perhaps it's things that we've begun to pursue. Maybe it's whenever we pursued sexuality outside the context of marriage, thinking that it would bring satisfaction, thinking that it would bring fulfillment, but in reality, all that's left is shame, and all we want to do is hide. Perhaps we were chasing approval from that particular group of people, thinking if we could get this group of people to like us, then we would feel accepted, then we would feel valued, then we would feel important, but that led you to do all kinds of things that now you're sitting here and you're ashamed of, and you hope no one ever finds out. Like, you name it. We know what this feels like. We know what it looks like to chase after something that we thought would bring us life, but it actually only brings us shame. Pursuing our own way. This is all of our stories. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. You and me. This is a common human experience. We know what this is like. We were created to be an image bearer of God, to reflect his glory. But instead, we traded that in for our own pursuits. We rebelled and we sinned. But the good news of the gospel and the good news of scripture is that our story doesn't end there. And what we see is the third truth tonight. Yes, you were created. Yes, you have sinned. But the third truth is you are pursued. You are pursued. Again, we see all of this even in the book of Genesis, that in the book of Genesis in chapter 3, God comes to the man and the woman who are covering their sin. They're covering their shame. They're naked and they're ashamed and they've tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God calls out to the man and the woman in the garden and says, where are you? And he pursues them in their rebellion. He pursues them in their shame. And what we see ultimately is that God removes the fig leaves that they have fashioned for themselves. And he kills an innocent animal and fashions for them a garment of clothing. And I don't want you to miss the significance of this. That in that story, God takes the life of an innocent animal. He takes the life of an innocent one to cover the shame of the guilty that he pursues his people and he covers their shame. And what we see as we follow the entire storyline of the Bible is that this is what your God continues to do over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. He's sending prophets, he's sending kings, he's sending people to call out to the people of God and to call them back to himself, to tell them about who God is, to tell them about what God has done, to tell them about who they are in the eyes of God and how they are meant to live their life. All throughout the Old Testament, we see a God who pursues his people and we see that culminate ultimately whenever the New Testament begins and we are introduced to God in flesh, Jesus Christ. 
Emmanuel, God with us, that he comes to this earth and he lives among us, walking in perfect obedience to the Father. God the Son comes walking in perfect obedience to the Father. He walks a life of obedience without rebellion. At the end of his life, he then surrenders his life for us. Romans 5, 8, this is God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the story of the gospel is the story of a God who took on flesh and lived among us and surrendered his life so that once again, an innocent life could be given to cover the shame of the guilty. This is the gospel. You have been pursued. You, again, many of you have heard this truth multiple times. But I just want to ask you, like, are you letting this sink into your heart that this is true of you? That your sin, your sin deserves the punishment of God, but that your God has pursued you in love and in grace and in mercy. And through his pursuit of you, he has demonstrated his love by sending his son, Jesus, so that your shame can be covered in the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the story of the gospel. He can and he will cover your shame in the sacrifice of Jesus no matter how far you have strayed, no matter how much you have done, no matter how much brokenness you have participated in. Yes, your sins may be many, but his mercy is more. And his grace is sufficient for even the darkest parts of your disobedience. This is true of you that you have the opportunity to come to God and to exchange your shame for his grace. Like that is an amazing exchange. And whatever the Bible teaches us, that whenever we come into relationship with God through surrendering to Jesus, that we are made into something new. The New Testament talks about this in all kinds of different places. One of my favorite places is Ephesians 2. Verse 10, you don't have to flip there, I'm going to read it to you. Ephesians 2 talks about how we were all dead in our sins. Then God made us alive together through Christ. If we have surrendered to Christ, we have been brought from death to life. And then Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this. It's speaking of those who have surrendered their life to Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created anew in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Other translations of the Bible use the word masterpiece there. An interesting thing about that word, last week I taught you guys some Hebrew, so this week I'm going to teach you some Greek, okay? The word translated as workmanship or masterpiece in Ephesians 2.10 is the word poema. Can you say that? There you go. So you learned some Greek tonight. Good job. Poema is a very specific word in the Greek. And it's only used one other time in the entirety of the New Testament. Also by the Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians, he wrote in Romans chapter 1, talking about the things that have been made by God, he said this, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And the word made is the same word, poema, that is translated as workmanship. And so what we see, and this is really important, what we see 
is that the things that are made by God are meant to display the glory of God. The things that are made by God are meant to display the glory of God, which means if you have found life in Christ Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him, then you have been made into something new. And that means that you are no longer defined by your sins, by your shortcomings, by your failures, by your successes, by any of it, but you were defined by his grace. And that God has a unique plan for your life, that he wants to use you for good works. He wants to use you to display his glory and his power, just like he intended in the garden, he still intends for you. He wants to use you to display his glory and his power in your spheres of influence. So there's one main truth that I want you to grasp onto tonight. What does the Bible have to say about you? What tells us this? It tells us ultimately that God is your creator and your redeemer. God is your creator and your redeemer. And again, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard those words attributed to God. But consider the implications of this. If God is your creator... That means that he determines your identity. You understand that, right? That he is the one who gets to tell you who you are because he's the one that made you. No one has naming rights over you other than the one who has made you. You understand that? No one can tell you who you are other than your creator. If he is your creator, that means he determines your identity. But not only is he your creator, he's also your redeemer, which means that he's paid a price for you. And the value of something is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay. And the price that God has paid for you is the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And so in the moments where you're left wondering if your life is valuable, if your life has meaning, if God cares about you, you can rest in the truth that you were worth sending his son to die for. That is what is true of you. You are created by God. God is your creator. And if you are in Christ Jesus, God is your redeemer. What that means for you is that you can actually stop trying to project an image. You can stop trying to earn an identity or earn value. You can stop with the pursuit of just trying to project confidence to the world and you can rest in the finished work of Jesus and what he says of you. And if you are in Christ Jesus, whenever God looks at you, he sees his beloved son. He sees his beloved daughter. He sees his child. He sees his dearly loved children. So the application for tonight is really simple. All right, it's nothing revolutionary. But the thing that I want to encourage you to do in your daily life, whenever you leave this place, whenever you wake up tomorrow, I want to encourage you to just to do one thing, to just stop, to just stop and take some time to evaluate your own life, to consider what are your core beliefs whenever it comes to your own identity and your own value, and how are those beliefs directing your actions? If you want something to write down, I believe I have this on the screens behind me. What I would encourage you to do is to create a habit of reflection and remembrance. Create a habit of reflection 
and remembrance. And what I mean by that is create the habit of taking time to actually pause and to reflect on the truths of God and to remember who he says that you are. And let those things begin to form you. I had this experience even today. I'm in a really busy season right now. Perhaps some of you can relate to that. It's just a busy season at work. We got a lot of things, a lot of deadlines that we're up against with submitting budgets, submitting calendars, and we're also trying to, you know, finish the school year, all those things. I'm also in seminary right now. I've got papers. I've got tests, much like many of you. There's just a lot of things going on in my personal life. There's just a lot of moving parts. This week has been an incredibly busy week. I've been in a lot of meetings And this afternoon after lunch, I just got to my house and I began to review all of this and I began to feel myself starting to feel anxious. You know, like like knot in your chest. And I began to start to worry, like what if I don't do well tonight? And I began to worry, like what are these people gonna think about me if I get up here and I don't know what to say? And what are these people gonna think about me if I say the wrong thing or whatever? And I just began to worry about your perception of me tonight. And then it dawned on me how stupid I was being whenever I was coming to talk to you about identity and value, and I was worried about it myself. And so on my back porch this afternoon, I just closed my laptop, and I just sat there for a second, and I just began to preach this truth to myself, that my identity and my value is not determined by how well I do in this moment, that my identity and my value is not determined by what you think of me as much as I love you and I want you to like me. Like it's just not determined by that. And I began to rest in the truth that Jesus died for me and that God is pleased with me, not because of my works, but because of Jesus' works. And what that did for me is that freed up my soul, freed up my heart. And that knot that was in my chest began to release. And I began to feel more confident and more free to just stand up here and do what I believe God has created me to do. And that's what I want for you. I don't want you chasing identity and value in all these external things. I want you to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, to believe the gospel, that you were created. And yes, you sinned, but you have also been pursued. And what God says about you is that God, he is your creator, and he is your redeemer, which means that he is the one that determines your identity and your value, and you can rest in that. 